Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Well, good morning again. Um, I'm Curtis, for anyone who hasn't met me before. Um, I know we've been gone for a little while, and there's some new faces and stuff when I got back, which is great. It's great to see the church expanding. Um, Today, we're going to follow the arc that Nathan has set up for us, and we're going to dive into just a few verses rather than doing a large spectrum um, of what we've done before in some of the previous chapters. And we're going to hit chapter 3 in Colossians pretty hard. Um, So I'd invite you guys all to turn with me to Colossians 3, starting in verse 12, and we're going to work our way through this passage. So Paul's writing to the Colossians, and these are the words that he says, Colossians 3, beginning with verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So you might notice the last half of that was our call to worship today, and rightfully so, because it's an amazing passage. And at first, when I first started looking at it, I was like, okay, this is pretty self-explanatory. Paul says, do this, don't do this, do this. All right, good, let's go. Um, but as I started digging in, there's more. There's so much more. And, and like the Word of God typically is, and what Paul really likes to do is he likes to wrap a nuance inside of a nuance. So we're going to start to unpack that a little bit today. It's often said in scientific circles that nature abhors a vacuum, and it's absolutely true. Anywhere here on Earth, if I were to take a glass of water and I'd dump it out, we'd all say the glass is empty. But the truth is, as soon as that glass is empty of water, it's filled with something else. Air gets in there, there is sometimes bugs, who who knows? But that glass is never empty. In the same sake here, Paul, in the previous little bit uh, of this chapter, actually said to get rid of all the stuff. And he actually commends the Colossians at the beginning of the, of the book, saying, you did well, you got rid of all this stuff in your life that was there before you had Jesus. And so now he's going to tell them how to fill themselves up. Paul understands that it's not enough to just explain solid doctrine. That is the beginning of transformation. It's the beginning of the sanctification, the sanctification process. Uh, But it's not the end. And as James states, we have to become doers, not just hearers. It's not enough for us to just accept. The demons accept that God is true. They believe it, and they shudder. We need to do something different. The Colossians, and by extension all Christians, need to respond to this sound doctrine by putting off the responses of the world and putting on the responses of Jesus. So I want to dive in. We're going to start from the very beginning here, Colossians 3, 12, and 13, and we're, you have to forgive my geekiness, I like language, I like analogies, so we're going to work through this kind of piece by piece. So in these first two verses, I want to focus in on, on two key words, and I know the slides are a little bit jumbled here, we'll get to that in just a second, but two key words, and the first one being this word chosen, 
and another word, which is put on. And we're going to do some comparison with some, a parable of Jesus in a minute. But I want you just to see those two words at first. And as Christians, as a body of believers, we've seen these a lot. Uh, chosen is the Greek word electos, which basically means exactly what we think it means. It means chosen. It means selected. Uh, common phrasing in the Bible. 1 Peter 2, in verse 9, says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Uh, Revelation 17 says, And those who are with him, speaking of Jesus in this case, are the called and the chosen and the faithful. So we understand this idea of chosen. We understand this idea of, I selected that, that's mine, I chose it. But what about this word put on? What does put on mean? Now, in this concept, it, it seems to be that it is generally speaking about the idea of taking something off and putting something on. But what does that mean? Uh, and again, Paul's letters are rife with this word. It's kind of an odd combination of words, and it really means to, to sink into. Um, we would think more of it like falling into quicksand and sinking into it. Or, in this concept, it's that pair of jeans that fit just right, so you slip them on and they're just, we're good to go. And Paul uses this language a lot. He uses this language a lot, a lot. Uh, in Romans, he tells us to, uh, sorry, I'll actually give you all the verses if you want to look them up. This is Romans 13, 12 through 14. But really, I just want to focus in on the one section in there. And he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, that seems a little bit more difficult. How do you sink into Jesus Christ? Or in Corinthians 15, 53, he says, but the perishable must put on the imperishable. The mortal must put on immortality. Same word, again. In Galatians 3, he says, For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself, or put on, Christ. The one that pretty much everybody is familiar with is in Ephesians 6, where Paul says to put on the full armor of God. Again, same words, this putting on, this idea of sinking into. So it's really common, but where did Paul get this? Like, what does this even mean? What does it mean to put on a heart of compassion? What does it mean to put on the armor of God? What does it mean to put on immortality? What does it mean to put on Christ? So these two questions we're going to answer, and to answer them, we're going to do what Jesus did, and we're going to tell a story. So in my case, I'm not a great storyteller, so I'm going to use Jesus' story. <clears throat> so I'm going to invite you guys all to turn over to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, this is Jesus speaking to a crowd. And this is well known as the parable of the marriage feast. <clears throat> and we're going to read a large section of it. I promise I'll be quick. And we're going to focus in on a couple of key verses. So this is again Matthew 22, starting, starting with verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. And they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat and livestock, and all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to the slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. 
and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So the word chosen in here uh, is pretty obvious, I would think. It says the word chosen right in there. But I want to focus in on this, this again, this, this put on. And what is, what is Paul saying when he says to put on? So it's a little bit hidden in the language. Um, but this put on, you can go back to the slide. Sorry, I got ahead of you. Um, this idea of put on is the same words in Colossians 3 and in Matthew 22. And in Colossians 3, Paul tells us to put on. And in Matthew 22, by contrast, there's a man who was not dressed in. And that dressed in is this, the same conjunction of the word in Greek, and it means the exact same thing. There was a man who had not sunk into his wedding clothes. So what does that mean? Curtis, you're up here standing to me, that put on wedding clothes, put on Jesus. What am I actually putting on here, and what does that actually mean? Well, there's a couple different levels of interpretation. Obviously, there is a salvation aspect to this wedding feast, but there's more to it, especially to those who are already saved. So we're going to look at a couple different parts of the language here. The first one being that there are multiple guests to this wedding. Uh, there are those that are invited from the very beginning. And we can look at this and just say, okay, this, this is Israel. Okay, they've been called from the very, very beginning. They were unworthy, and they, God had some pretty strong judgment upon them. In this case, the parable of the king was very forthright in his judgment against them, and rightfully so. Everyone else... When they go out to the byways, the highways, and they pull in everyone else, that's us. That's the Gentiles. That's everyone who is not of the nation of Israel. We're called the many in here. And you notice that we are also called to the wedding feast. So by implication here, we can understand that those who are putting on these wedding garments are those who are chosen. And we're going to get to the nuances of the chosen as well. But for the moment, we're going to focus in on that idea of those who are being invited to this wedding feast are expected to put on some form of, of formal attire, some form of, of wedding clothes. Okay, so that's great for the parable, and it makes sense. You don't want to show up to a, a wedding wearing your, you know, your cut-off jeans and maybe last year's, I don't know, moth-eaten sweatshirt. It's not going to go over very well. Believe me, I've been to a couple weddings. <clears throat> Now, this is a little bit different here because what Jesus is hitting at is that not only have these people been called, not only have they been brought into this wedding feast, they've been given something. And it's not uncommon in first century weddings and in weddings of times past and even just royal gatherings. It's very, very common for the king or whoever is putting on the feast to give out some form of garments to wear at the royal celebration. And this is really no different. And Jesus' audience would understand that he's telling them that they were given something. This man was given something to wear when he walked in, and then he refused to put it on, which comes with a very, very strong warning. And I'm going to flip us over here again really quickly to Revelation 19. So this is Revelation 19, beginning in verse 7. And this is the point that, that John is going to clarify in Revelation, but this is the point that Jesus is driving home right now and that Paul is going to come in and stand on top of to make his point in a moment. 
Revelations 19 and verse 7 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So here is that tie-in. Here's that strong sense of putting on. The wedding clothes that Jesus is talking about is not a physical garment. He's talking about the acts of the saints, the righteous acts of the saints. Once again, this is not just the doctrine of the saints was correct. This is Jesus saying that the correct wedding clothing for this man at the marriage supper of the Lamb is going to be the righteous acts of the saints. All of a sudden, put on takes a whole new meaning. Not only do we sink into our favorite garments, but we sink into the likeness of Christ. We sink into righteous actions. We sink into what it means to truly be chosen of God. To refuse to put on the likeness of Jesus, we are spitting in his face and saying, what you did is not worthy of me, so I'm walking out of this wedding feast which is really not where we want to be. <clears throat> so what does it mean? Okay, we, we got this idea. We're, we're putting on these righteous acts. That makes us chosen. Paul is basically stating that those who have been chosen, selected, elected, are to carry on Jesus' name. We have been chosen to carry on Jesus' name. In Matthew, it says, for many are called and few are chosen. That's straight from the parable. There are people called from all over the place. God is calling people into this marriage feast. And those that he is giving the garments to, those who are coming in and participating in this wedding feast, have been chosen to carry the name of Jesus' bride, the church. And if we have been chosen to carry the name of Jesus Christ, we better do our best to look like that. If we are walking around in our tattered rags, we're not looking like Christ. If we put on the garments that have been given to us, we will look like Christ. So the first part of this, of this passage in Colossians, Paul is saying, you did well to put off the things that were of this world. Now we need to put on the things of Christ. And that's our call. We're not just called to drape them over our shoulders and cast them off. We are called to sink into them, like sunk to the neck in quicksand. We're not getting out of it here. That's how comfortable we are supposed to be in these righteous actions. Okay, great. So we're going to put on these righteous actions. Well, what are the righteous actions? And here again, I feel like Paul makes really does not make it very difficult for us to know what these are. <clears throat> But just because uh, maybe the Colossians didn't read the book of Galatians, maybe they didn't read Corinthians, maybe they never saw the, the letter to the Ephesians. So he comes through and he gives them to them all over again. Okay? And he says, these are the things that you are to put on. You are to put on a heart of compassion. You are to put on kindness. You are to put on humility. You are to put on gentleness. You are to put on patience. You are to put on forbearance. You are to put on forgiveness. That's quite a list. And it's not easy to wrestle with that, uh, but it is basically the same list in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. So let's, again, I like language, so let's dig into what some of this means. Um, a heart of compassion, 
is one of those things that gets thrown around. You see it on, on signs sometimes like heart of compassion missions or heart of compassion soup kitchen or heart of compassion Episcopalian church or something. We like this word heart of compassion. So what is a heart of compassion? I like the King James in this. Uh, they actually say it is bowels of mercy. Now, I want that to be put on the slogan of our church. We are the church of the bowels of mercy. <clears throat> okay, so that's fun. It's fun to think about. Okay, so this is a funny sign. But what does that mean? What is, a, what is bowels of mercy? So, not too long ago, the ASPCA put out a commercial that had by far the largest impact on donations in years and years and years. And it started off, and every one of you can picture this as soon as I start saying it, it started off with a picture of a dog that only had one eye. And in the background, you hear Sarah McLaughlin start singing, in the arms of an angel, right? And not a single person in here, I guarantee you, not a single person here. You may hate dogs, but you're like, oh, man. <sighs> Oh, it got me right here. And that's, that's the emotion right there. You feel it in your guts. Like, that's how strong this heart of compassion is. You feel it in your guts. That's what Paul is saying here. That's what bowels of mercy are. You, it is such a strong emotion uh, that it, it really can't be contained. And you feel that for the world. You feel that for your brothers. You feel that for your sisters. Kindness is, doesn't have as great an analogy to go with it. Sorry, I, I couldn't only think of one good one for each one. But uh, kindness, this is moral excellence. This is integrity. Humility, this is an understanding of your own ego, being willing to accept modesty and lowliness. Gentleness is control. Gentleness is mildness. Gentleness is being willing to give a little bit, even when it means that you're not displaying your full strength. <clears throat> Patience. Patience is hard, but patience is forbearance. Patience is fortitude. Patience is constancy, steadfastness, perseverance, slowness as contrasted to being hasty to act. Bearing or forbearing means to hold oneself up, to endure, to sustain, to suffer, to stand erect underneath persecution. So we have this list of things that we are supposed to be. And then Paul hits it with the the sucker punch, and says, beyond all that, that's good stuff, and I want you to look like this, and that's what righteous acts are. But more than anything else, he hits us with, uh, you need to be loving. Beyond all these things, put on love. So again, here's that same word again. Put it on. Sink into it. What is love? And he tells us right off the bat, it's the perfect bond of unity. So we've talked about love before. Nathan has a great definition of love. Uh, and I'm going to steal it from right, right from 1 Corinthians 13. Amen. And this, this, this is love. This is love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. It's not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Just like we sung about today, love never fails. So what is love? Love is all of these things. That is the definition of love. Love is all these things. And you actually will see the correlation to a few of the things that Paul listed already. So it makes no, I mean, it's really no wonder 
that he says, beyond all these things, put on love, because love covers all of these things. When he tells us to put on love, he tells us that love is the perfect bond of unity. So perfect bond of unity. What is a perfect bond of unity? It sounds great, right? And I know, again, that's one of the things we like to talk about, like love unites, love doesn't tear apart, uh, love is fantastic, it brings people together. Uh, but what is this idea of, of a perfect bond of unity? It, in Greek, it really means a band of completeness. And if, if you were to translate it literally, the word means it's perfect unity of unity. It's all kind of brought into this idea that love is unity. Well, okay. Love is, is unity. I, li- I like word pictures. I, I love word pictures. Um, and I have some mechanical background, so forgive me for any of you who don't, but welders are amazing, okay? And I, I promise you this is going to tie in. A welder can take a piece of metal and stick another piece of metal to it and can put some other metal in between, and that joint is super-duper strong. Any of you who drive a car drive on welded joints every single day, and they hold thousands of pounds. It's amazing. If you drive over the bridge on your way from Kentucky to Ohio, you drove over a bunch of, of welded joints. Welding is amazing, but welding is not perfect. In fact, weld is the weakest joint in most welded structures because it doesn't combine on the molecular level. Now, a forger who takes a sword, he makes the whole thing out of one piece of metal. He melts it all down, and he puts it together, and he smashes out all the dents, and then he sharpens it, and then he has a sword when he's all done. Where's that sword going to break? I don't know. There's no welded joints on there. There's no weak spot in it. This is the word picture that Paul is playing with here. When he says a perfect bond of unity, he's saying love unites to the molecular level where the metal is so bonded together that there is no room for it to crack. This is love. Love is, is unity. Wow, that is a great analogy, Curtis. Good job. Let's go home. <laughs> but the truth is, maybe we still don't get it. Maybe we still don't get it. We've heard those words before, and yeah, the word pictures are cute, but... We've heard these words before so much that they've begun to dull a little bit. Like, what is patience? Well, patience is not getting angry when my child throws her dinner at me. Or patience means that when my brother is angry, I let it slide this time. But what does it really mean to be loving? These attributes don't seem that extreme anymore. We like to qualify ourselves as patient people. We like to qualify ourselves as as loving people. Um, But what does it really mean? Maybe we've mastered it. Maybe we've got what it takes. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell a little story. Again, not, not mine, but another really good story. So imagine you are standing in a crowd. There's lots of protests going on in the, in the modern world as well. So imagine you're standing in a crowd. You've been whipped up into a frenzy. It doesn't really matter what, what's going on or why. What really matters is that you are angry. You're angry because you've been mistreated. You are angry because your friends have been mistreated. You are angry because the world treats you like dirt, and you want something done about it. Somebody's got to pay for this. Somebody has to pay for my condition because, you know, I'm number one. And I'm in a crowd of people who think the exact same way, and we are mad. Someone needs to pay for this. So, in Luke 23, we have that same situation. 
there is a crowd calling for blood, wanting blood. Why? Eh, it doesn't matter. They're angry. The world has done them wrong. And this is love. Luke 23 tells us that as Jesus is there hanging on the cross, nails through his wrists, bleeding from his head, bleeding from his side, bleeding from everywhere on his body where he's been whipped and scourged, looking out at a, a crowd of people who hate him, hate him. And this is what Jesus says. He doesn't say, you perverse generation, go to hell. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That is love. That is the word picture of love. That is what unity means. When you are so caring, when you look out and it hurts because you have so much compassion on these people, that you're willing to say, no matter what you've done to me, Father, forgive them. And I challenge any of you to look at that example and say, I've done that. I haven't. I certainly have not. I get mad all the time, and I want the other person to die. <laughs> so this is my example, and this should be our example as a church. And we are encouraged to put on, we are encouraged to clothe ourselves in Christ's likeness. It means to look at this picture and say, God, let me be like Jesus. Let me be able to forgive like that. Let me be able to love like that. So we hit this break in the scripture here where Paul has gone through and explained all this stuff, telling us we need to, to sink into these righteous acts because they are what is called of us. We are to be forgiving. We're to be loving. We're to be humble. We are to be like Jesus and forgive. But as soon as I walk out those doors, it gets really, really hard. Really, really hard. And Paul understands this. Paul doesn't say, all right, you guys got it, go. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps and head out that door. The world is God in for you, but you're going to be okay. No, no, he tells us. He tells us in Colossians 3, 15 and 16, some pretty cool stuff. He tells us, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And at first blush, that seems like a very directed statement, like I just said. All right, pick yourself up, praise Jesus, go to the world. But that's not what he's saying at all. What he's actually saying is that every single one of these you words would be correctly translated in the Kentucky y'all, okay? So let the peace of Christ rule in y'all's hearts, to which indeed y'all were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell, I can't speak today, richly dwell within y'all with all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in y'all's hearts to God's. So this is a from the good old English class, second person plural. We don't really have a second person plural in English. It's implied. Uh, but if you've taken Spanish or you've taken French or you've taken certain forms of German, Dutch, uh, there is a second person plural, and Greek is no exception. Every single of these words is directed not to the individual but to the group. That should seem pretty strong right off the bat. Like, you're not told to let the peace of Christ rule in just your heart. Again, this is not a just your heart. It's in y'all's hearts. Because 
Paul understands something about human nature because Jesus understood something about human nature because God designed something about human nature. And that is, we are uh, what AI programmers and scientists like to call swarm logic. A human is pretty smart. Okay? As far as other creatures on earth go, we're pretty smart. We can do some amazing things. But we're not that smart. As a unit, we can do some amazing things. We build buildings. Uh, we build several ton instruments of aluminum and uh, whirling blades of death that cause things to fly through the sky that shouldn't. Uh, we send chunks of metal out to the farthest parts of our own solar system just to send back pictures via radio waves, which are electromagnetic something or others. I mean, we're amazing as a species. <laughs> we can do some pretty amazing things. And the reason we can do those things is because we drive each other. Humans are known for driving each other. And I'm going to use an insect example because it is moving towards Halloween here and bugs are everywhere, right? So I'm going to use two examples of this idea of swarm logic. Now, an AI programmer would tell me, you're not doing it right. You're supposed to have individual units that are all working towards a whole. But I'm going to get there. There's two well-known swarms of animals, swarms of insects in nature. The first one is locusts. Locusts are an extremely destructive swarm. They are driven by one guiding principle, and that is, I'm hungry. And they whip each other up into a frenzy, and they go off and they a gigantic swarm, and they cause famine all over the place because they destroy everything they eat. They're not driven by any one guiding principle besides for what feels good to me. Does that sound like anything we've seen? Let's look at another swarm. Bees, on the other hand, I'm not talking wasps because those guys are jerks. I'm talking about bees. <laughs> Bees are very focused, and every single one of them has a drive to help the hive. Their entire purpose is to see the hive survive. So some of them make honey, some of them tend the larvae, some of them attend the queen, but they all have a job, and their jobs are always to help the hive. And what happens? Well, hopefully the hive survives, they make honey, we get to benefit from the honey. But even beyond that, just as a drive, part of their doing what bees do, they pollinate way more than any other insect, better than we as humans can do ourselves through all sorts of fun little tricks and tips that we do, like sticking a Q-tip into a flower and into another flower, that takes too long. So these bees do all that work for us completely as a side effect of them trying to protect the hive. This, this is what Paul's getting at here. He's saying, look, if you are so focused on serving Christ and encouraging your brothers to serve Christ, encouraging your sisters to serve Christ, encouraging the church to serve Christ, if you guys are so far into Jesus that you are doing everything for him, if you are loving one another the way that Jesus loved the world, it's not going to matter because everything that you're going to do is going to be beneficial to the world. People are going to see. People are going to notice. Just by being generous to each other, you're being generous to everyone else as well. This is amazing stuff. If you want to be, this is, this is going to be funny sounding, but if you want to be like that, we need to be like bees. We need to be working for each other with the common goal of driving each other to Christ. Proverb hits this right on the head when, he, when uh, King Solomon says, iron sharpens iron. 
so when man sharpens another. If we are sharpening each other towards chaos and destruction, well, then it makes perfect sense that what we see is chaos and destruction. If we are sharpening each other to, as the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 10 says, to hold fast the confession of our hope, then it's going to make sense that we are going to be driven towards something greater. Paul himself exemplifies this at the beginning of the letter, and it's, it's kind of awesome that we've come back to this refrain several times. Nathan hit it on the very first message that he had in Corinthians and said, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, admonishing, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then he took us back to the very beginning of Colossians where we learned that that first introductory section where we learn about Jesus and what he is and who he is is actually exactly that. It's a song. Paul took the time to write a poem or a song to the Corinthians, I'm sorry, the Colossians, to explain to them who Jesus was as an encouragement, to encourage them to dwell in this knowledge, to encouraging them to y'all dwell in this knowledge. So if Paul takes his own advice, then we probably should as well. So if we truly wish to put on Jesus Christ and look like him and be worthy at the wedding feast, then our primary goal needs to be to drive each other to Jesus Christ. Like that swarm of bees, we need to drive each other towards this common goal. But why? Why does that even matter? Why do we care to drive each other towards Jesus Christ? I mean, what's, what's the real big deal about all this anyways? Paul doesn't have a whole lot to say about this because rightly so. He's been setting up this argument since the first letter he wrote. But he tells us in Colossians 3, and this is kind of where we're going to end this this passage, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So once again, this is a y'all statement. He's saying y'all need to do this, not just singly, but as a group, you need to do this. Because, and this is going to harken back to the very beginning of the book and what we've talked about all of this time, Jesus is worthy. He is worthy of that. He is worthy of us trying to please him. The name of Jesus Christ is our rallying call throughout this entire thing. Because if it was Curtis hanging on that cross, we'd all go to hell. And that's the sad truth. But because it was Jesus hanging on that cross, we have all been forgiven which is an amazing, amazing thing. And that's why he is the one who's worthy to open the scroll. That is why he is the one who is worthy for us to emulate. He is the one who is worthy of our praise and adoration. So as we kind of wrap things up today, I just want to encourage you as we walk out the doors into a world that does hate us, into a world that is willing to beat us down, a world that just wants to see chaos and destruction, to put on Jesus Christ. The next time someone wrongs you, and I know it's difficult because I struggle with this too, but the next time someone wrongs you, look to the example of Jesus and say, Father, forgive them. Forgive me for not wanting to forgive them. The next time that you're struggling with something, pull a brother alongside you and say, hey, you know, I'm going through some stuff right now, but let's focus on Jesus because he's the reason. He's the one who's worthy. And no matter where we are, whether it is driving down the street, walking our dog, meeting with friends, try and do everything in that y'all statement. Now, you all 
Season your conversation with salt. Be continuously dwelling in the richness of Christ's love. Understanding what he did for us and why that's important. And let the name of Jesus be our rallying call so that no matter what we do in word or deed, we're doing it all in his name, giving thanks to him through God the Father. All right. So as it all sinks in and the communion team comes up, I would like to just pray over us. Um, Father in heaven, it's amazing the words that you've given to us. You've given to us so many directions, and every single one of them comes with a promise of you sustaining us, a promise of you giving us um, eternal life, as well as just being able to dwell in a body that is also willing to serve you. Lord, we know that Jesus is worthy, and sometimes we forget, sometimes we wander, sometimes we just can't stand trying so hard day in and day out. But Lord, let us remember to put on. Let us remember to put on. Let us remember to put on love. Let us remember to put on humility. Let us remember to put on this heart of compassion. Let us emulate Jesus Christ in all that we do and say, let us dwell richly. Let us do in word and deed everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and continually give thanks to you. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.